it was a horrendous experience. This kid was regressing in this environment because it was so strict and they were focused on direct instruction. That meant that one and a half year old, two years old, she was expected to sit at a table for most of the day, memorizing things and was being shown off for whatever she was doing or being shamed or threatened through some sort of reward penal system for that. And in my struggles with them to shift and transform and be more cooperative in their learning styles, I was just like, it wasn't worth it. You can't keep using tools of oppression and expect to raise free people. You just heard the voice of Yolande Tomlinson. Yolande is a fellow native Jamaican. Shout out to island women doing self-directed education work. Yolande is also an avid gardener and a lover of people and all species of flowering plants, including dandelions. You know that that's somebody that I'm going definitely fucks with when they include their love of flowering plants in their bio. Yes, <laughs> Yolande has two beautiful daughters who inspire a lot of her work and her shifting. She's going to share with us today the backstory and a bit of the logistics around co-founding the Anna Julia Cooper Learning and Liberation Center in collaboration with Tamika Middleton, who you've heard on this podcast on episodes 1 and 103, and also Zara Alabanza, who you've also heard on this podcast. And all of the links to those episodes will be on the show notes page, raisingfreepeople.com forward slash 109. The Anna Julia Cooper Learning and Liberation Center is a cooperative, learner-centered, and self-directed community based in Atlanta and rooted in a radical Black queer feminist politic. It's also a multi-generational, decolonized community of care, healing, and intellectual exploration where learning opportunities abound. I pull that right off the website, and that, of course, will be linked to the show notes page. I had the pleasure of working with the co-founders, some of the co-founders of AJC Learning and Liberation Center. And I got to tell you, one of the things that I really value about that experience is that it was one of the earliest times that I can remember being in community with people who had a shared goal, were working on a project together, but still centered people. So like if you didn't have your shit together for a meeting, you weren't meant to feel like somehow less than. The focus was on what needed to happen to support you in doing your work. And we were all doing that in ways that I just, I still draw on today and still carry with me into the work that I do. So um, yeah, Yolande, I'm really deeply grateful for her presence in the world in Atlanta, where our family spends a lot of time, and just in the space of Black women who are doing work that reminds us about the importance of remembering ourselves. Because outside of the Anna Julia Cooper Learning and Liberation Center, Yolande also founded the Phoenix House, 
also based in Atlanta in blackety black ass historic West End. If you know anything about Atlanta or if you don't, you should look up the West End area. And so with the Phoenix House, the focus is creating a space where black, brown, indigenous, LGBTQ, poor, immigrant, migrant, disabled, femme, women folks can practice their political duty to embrace self-care so that we can disrupt at the roots these systems of oppression that depend on us overworking ourselves, grinding, hustling, and being unwell and unloving. So creating a space where that practice can be nurtured with yoga, meditation, discussion, discovery, space. And I really, really appreciate, and I think you will too, what she's going to bring here to this space in terms of what led her as a mother and a community member to co-create a self-directed learning space. Listen as Yolan talks about the tough work the big rewards and the powerful vision of her community of comrades and believers in the AJC motto, free people, free people. In terms of the experiences that have led me to found AJC, the Anna Julia Cooper Learning and Liberation Center, it has many pieces to it. The first of which is that I have really a two-sided experience of being educated in the rural countryside in Jamaica. On the one hand, we went to a traditional Jamaican school, which meant that we were under a British colonial system, that I got spanked in school. I got told what to do, how to do it. I was expected to recite things perfectly without issue or problem. And I got beatings in school for making a mistake. I was also singled out among other kids for being gifted or talented or whatever you want to call it, which also meant that I got to stay after when everybody else was going home to do extra lessons, which I didn't love so much. And I didn't really see being singled out in that way as something special. I saw it as a punishment. But either way, I excelled in that system despite the violence that I experienced. And that was contrasted with growing up in the countryside where I was free to do what I wanted to do, to explore nature on my own with my cousins, with my neighbors, to make whatever we wanted from whatever was available, from making slingshots, hunting birds, <laughs> growing food, climbing trees, picking fresh fruits, and just doing whatever the heck we wanted to do because we had the freedom to do that. And so having those two experiences growing up, I remember always thinking about what I would do and be when I was a mother. And I wanted to have like five children. Well, that was until I had one, <laughs> the first one. And I was like, oh, wait, I think one's enough. Then the second one came along and I was like, okay, two, that's enough. But when I had my first daughter, I was committed to ensuring that she didn't have the type of experience I had grown up in Jamaica in terms of the exposure to violence and that she was nurtured and that she also got to experience education within the set of 
values and politics that I had grown into as an adult and as a young professional. And for me, that meant that I wanted Black feminism, politics, and values to be centered in her education. I wanted to homeschool, but I didn't know where to start, nor did I have a job that allowed for that. I was doing a lot of traveling internationally, and I was also under a lot of stress and demand for that. So I didn't feel like I could give her what I wanted. So what I did was I sought out places that I thought would give her all of those things. Our first try was at a multilingual international academy, and it was a horrendous experience. This kid that was potty trained at 18 months was regressing in this environment because it was so strict and they were focused on direct instruction. That meant that at one and a half year old, two years old, she was expected to sit at a table for most of the day, memorizing things and was being shown off for whatever she was doing or being shamed or threatened through some sort of reward penal system for that. And in my struggles with them to shift and transform and be more cooperative in their learning styles, I was just like, it wasn't worth it. Right around that point, I had my second child and I decided that I was going to forego the language acquisition because our household was a multilingual household. And so I wanted her to pick up those things too in her learning outside of our house. And so I decided that I wanted to forego that in favor of her having a more nurturing, supportive, cooperative environment. And so we enroll into a Montessori school. And in that environment, she loved her teachers and a teaching assistant, two Black women, one young and vibrant and energetic and just a lovely human being. And then she had an older Black woman who was nurturing and so sweet and kind and caring. And so she loved being around them. But that was <laughs> couched within a school system where it was one owner who was bent on making money. And so policies changed here and there. Classes got condensed and and shifted around. And my kid was experiencing something in that environment where she was getting tummy aches and I was getting calls that I needed to come and get her because she was feeling ill. And when I bring her home, she would sort of perk up and go, hey, so what are we doing today? And I remember having this thought to myself, which was, hmm, clearly something's going on. She doesn't want to be there. I can sit here and tell her about telling the truth and honesty and all these things. But at the end of the day, I'm not in her body and I don't know what she's actually experiencing. And I want to honor the fact that maybe she did feel ill at the times that I was being called and it's the environment that's making her ill. And so I try to talk to the owner as well about how things were shifting, how the teachers didn't have any sort of autonomy in their classroom to determine how things went and what I got instead was a lecture on how I need to talk to my children about being resilient and adjusting to things and going with the flow. And I was like, nah, what's not going to happen is you're not going to tell me that you're going to blame my child for what she's experiencing when I know that what you're doing is trying to make money. And I remember being so frustrated and I don't usually put out rants on Facebook, but in this case, I was overwhelmed and I did. And when I did that, a comrade, Tamika Middleton, who you've had on the show a few times, 
reached out to me and was like, hey, have you heard of unschooling? And I was like, no, what's that? (laughs) And she explained to me and I was like, yes, but I don't want to stay home with my kid and do all these things. I want her to be in an environment where she can have access to all of that. I also remember at the time uh, hearing about Sudbury and feeling like it wasn't quite the right fit culturally and otherwise and distance and so forth for us. And so when Tamika talked to me about unschooling and that I'm not expected to like have my own curriculum to do this with my children and sort of do all of the things. And in the initial stages that what I'm doing is really just letting them be observing and seeing who they are and honoring who they are while I'm also exposing them to other things. I was like, this sounds like a good fit for us and I want to try it out. And I also knew that I didn't see that for us as a family being the long-term solution. And so I said to her that I really want to create something that one, had a cooperative structure, and two, embodied the values and principles and ideals that we have and are working with in our social justice organizing work. And then three, has that element where they're the ones in charge of directing their learning. And so that's how we started with the organizing for AJC. Organizing for AJC took two years for us. And that's because we had a particular vision about the type of institution we were creating and the things that we're committed to doing and what else did we need to learn, who else did we need to bring into the process to ensure that we birth what it is that we imagined. So as I said, the three things and the three pillars of AJC for us is that we wanted one, a cooperative institution and not just a traditional co-op where it's the parents who own it and workers are paid by the families and they don't really have as much say in the institution. We wanted to build a multi-stakeholder cooperative that was also worker-owned and operated and had equal say in decision-making and that was also family-owned and operated and had a say in the decision-making. The second element was that it had to be a self-directed institution so that the people who had the say in what they were doing were the learners themselves. And the third element for us was around this concept of holistic transformation. And that's primarily where our Black queer feminist framework lives. For us, that meant that we wanted to do SDE within the framework of the liberation, social justice, human rights organizing that we were doing that recognize that people who are multiply and directly impacted by oppression have a unique perspective on the world and that we were invested in their particular liberation and that whomever came into this environment needed to honor and walk with that in mind and understand that how we strew, how we engage, how we create this thing was going to be rooted in that. And we were not willing to compromise those three elements of it. It also meant that we needed to fully educate ourselves within the cooperative models that exist. That meant that I was attending conferences. I was going to specific trainings. We were sharing readings. We were having teach-ins around this so that way we can fully educate ourselves. And we were looking at models 
the truth is I didn't get a lot of models around the multi-stakeholder cooperative stuff. When I talked to folks who were doing education co-ops, I got a lot of, ooh, yeah, that's a tough one. How do you balance the needs of the worker with the needs of the family? And oftentimes those things tend to be in conflict. Maybe you should consider this one approach first and then do this. And I was kind of like, I hear you. I respect what you bring to it. And yet we want to hold these two things in balance because we know that workers' rights are human rights and they're not often, if ever, honored in the way that they needed to be. And so we held steadfast to that idea that we wanted to balance out decision-making ownership among the stakeholders in AJC. And we knew that parents held a lot of power because if they were the ones who were doing most of the financial contribution, then oftentimes folk feel like they should get to make most of the decisions. And so we wanted to do that. For us, it wasn't so much as a struggle as we were initially told because for the most part, the parents and the workers were one and the same because the five of us who got together to organize, <laughs> we were like, yeah, as workers, we want to be honored and be respected in our whole selves and full dignity, then we can understand and, and respect how our learners need to come to it as well. And it also meant that as parents, that we also wanted to balance like, okay, yeah, we're bringing in the money, but we don't necessarily have to make all the decisions and we want to be able to balance those things. And so we decided that we wanted to do an assembly style process where decisions that pertain specifically to families were made by families. Decisions pertaining specifically to learners are made by learners. Decisions pertaining specifically to workers were made by workers. And then those things that need to be talked about collectively as an institution, that we would have a process for having input from everybody. And then we would use a consensus democratic decision-making process where everybody get one vote to make decisions in that. And so that's the practical way that we tried to balance the interests of each uh, stakeholder group and then have a process for deciding how we come to collective decision making. Of course, all of this is better in theory than in practice, as we've seen that as we bring more people in who don't overlap into two group, then we have to make shifts here and there. And it becomes a lot when you are holding multiple pieces, right? You're both parent and worker in the model. So let me back up a little bit. In terms of getting started, Tamika and I were the initial ones who, in fact, we had started maybe a year before of trying to do an education co-op. We hadn't gotten far enough into it where we were specific that it had to be SDE. And at that time, I wasn't fully aware of SDE, nor was I practicing SDE. So a bunch of things came together where that process kind of fell apart. And it was the rent that I put out on Facebook that brought us back together and where I was like, Tamika, I'm willing to do the main organizing to hold this together. I'm desperate. I need something. And she was like, well, for me to be fully engaged, I need this to be an SDE space. And these are the ways that I need that to be held in the space. I'm like, cool. You can hold that piece of it, educate me along the way. I'll hold the cooperative piece. And together we hold the radical queer Black feminist piece of it. And then we were like, well, we need other people to do this work. We know people out here in the world. My comrade and friend and sister girl, Bianca Campbell, who is an organizer within the reproductive gender justice sphere, was like, I know these two dope women, Zara Alabanza and Alcee Parks, who are doing 
phenomenal co-parenting, co-op housing, just like making things happen in Atlanta. You got to talk to them. They have a collective called Golden Seed Collective for Black Mamas of Color, and they will be really great people to work with. And it just happened to be that Zora was organizing a conference in Atlanta that I was serving on the local host committee for. And we met there and I was like, we're meant to meet. Let's talk. We have this thing that we're trying to organize. And they're like, awesome. We want to be in on it. Let's get started. And then another comrade was like, my friend Amanda Barnes just moved to Atlanta. She has two dope twins. She's a radical Latina mama, fierce ass human rights organizer, educator. I think she would be really interested in this project. You should meet with her and talk to her. And Amanda and I met and I was like, she sounds awesome. She's amazing. Let's bring her on board. And so the five of us, Tamika, Amanda, Alcy, and Zara, started meeting and started organizing around this. And we started a Facebook group that brought in other people who we knew had similar interests, either from the organizing space or from the co-op space or from the SDE space. And we brought them all together to the point where we had a Facebook group that up to like 70 people, it still exists, that we brought together. And most of those folks came over from the Golden Seed Collective And we tried to organize mainly online, but you know, the problem with Facebook as well, people love the idea of something. They want to be part of it because it sounds really great, but there isn't that face-to-face engagement. So we started moving from online to in-person and that's where the people were coming out. So when we started meeting in person and started creating this collective vision of what we want to see and how we want things to go, we realized that not all of us were on board in the same way. Some people had a problem with the queerness. Some people had a problem with, well, how are you going to get money? Are you willing to take money from the state? Are you doing these things? And because I think we were really steadfast in like these three pieces are not going to be compromised. At the end of the day, it was still us holding it together. And I'm sure we made some mistakes along the way, just in terms of how we were able to engage people, what capacity we had to do it. And so some people fell off just because they need probably more engagement or they just had a different direction or different expectations. So we kept organizing, working it out, having the planning meetings, going to the spaces that we needed to do, doing the research that we needed to get all of these pillars together. And we wanted to launch after our first year, but I think we had performance anxiety or just kind of like, we're just like, not yet. We're not there yet. Some of us were disappointed, but ultimately it was the right decision because You can't move forward something in the collective if you're not all in agreement, because we needed all of those people to feel strong in what we were doing. And it also meant that the time that one of us would have had to anchor as the lead person during the day, and none of us really have the capacity for that. So uh, Rima Hazuri, who was initially in our online organizing group, but hadn't made it out to any of our planning group reached back out to us and was like, hey, I hear you guys are really trying to launch this thing. Why don't we meet up and talk about what you're doing? And in the summer of 2017, me and then Tamika were meeting with Rima and planning and really tried to live into this. She's like, I got my two kids. I've been practicing SDE for a few years and I'm invested in this. And there are ways that I can invest in this with my sweat equity, my labor, the skills that I've already acquired and I can bring this to the space. And I'm also willing to offer my space on a limited basis so that we can launch. 
And then we had other comrades in community who was like, I have space and I can donate space for this. And community movement builders, specifically Kamau Franklin, space that we're using now was one that we basically got in kind from the work that they're doing there to say this space is open to community. You all can use it. Also because my nonprofit organization for human rights and democracy also rents space within community movement builders. And so we were able to utilize that space to help incubate and develop the cooperative because community movement builders was willing to work with us in that way. And we had original families who from day one, they were like, we love this concept. Mary Hooks and Taliba Obuya were like, our daughter Porter needs to be here and she's going to be here. And we want to learn more about self-directed education, but we believe in the vision and we want to commit to it. And we want to pay tuition in a way that helped to offset costs and do all these things. And in our first year, what we did was to have Rima as full-time. And I can't be overstated that what she contributed was invaluable. The sweat equity she put in, the skill sets that she brought to help hold that space was a monumental contribution to us being able to launch AJC. So having Rima as the full-time daily facilitator and each of the co-founders taking a day to help supplement to have two people on staff is how we operated in the first year. Right now we're in our second year and some of the challenges that we experienced along the way was we had a grand vision and when you're walking that out, there's a lot of things that get missed when there's not full-time commitment to it, including that we all have full-time jobs that were not at the center. And so our schedule shifted a lot, which meant that there was a lot of juggling in terms of the scheduling. When you have a vision where you recognize that something like education is a fundamental human right that should be a community good and ultimately no one should be turned away because they don't have money. And then you're willing to have a sliding scale model. Well, at the end of the day, we live in a system where we're not yet in that place. And so we needed to have priced our offerings differently such that we can bring in enough revenue to pay for some of the basic costs. That's still something that we're struggling with because we want to be able to be rooted in our community. And we want to make sure that this is not a privileged space that only the few of us who are already converted can be a part of it, but that the space is also a space for organizing folk within this framework of liberation, both for our kids, but also for the broader community and sets of peoples that we are struggling with and for. And I think the other piece of it is too that we have a lot of folk who are committed to social justice, to collective liberation, and they're still also needing to work through and process what it means for their learners, for their young people, for their children to be walking in this practice of liberation here and now. So what we find is that we're still also organizing family to SDE, even as they are inside of it and committing to it. And so trying to organize at the same time that we're trying to build and expand this particular institution is also one of the challenges that we have to face. And I can't overstate the challenge of money, which is that it's something that we bump against all the time. We want to pay workers fair wages and such, and we want to be able to free up our time to help expand the vision and promote and do all these other things. But at the end of the day, we still are in a position where 
we are still trying to figure out what's the secret sauce, what's the right balance of required family contribution such that we can pay our workers who are not family and also trying to pay for the services and the learning opportunities that our kids are interested in. Right now, we have a really good balance between, or at least we're trying to reach that good balance between bringing in money through our relationship with the nonprofit side of it, recognizing that is a tool for growing, but it's not the model of economic sustainability that we want to be able to see in a cooperative institution. And I think the other (laughs) big issue as well is how do we balance the multiple interests of the various stakeholders we have? How do we balance those particular interests when everyone is at a different level in each of the different pillars that we're in? For us, that means developing really radical, generative, healing processes and systems for helping to work through that as we're holding each other, as we talk about in a community of comfort and care, and ultimately a process of liberation. It's both challenging, but also really beautiful when we're able to sort of hit that space where we're like, yes, this is what I mean. This is how I see you. This is how what we're trying to build and recognize that none of us is each other's enemy. And ultimately, we just need to be able to understand who each other is at the core. And which is also what we're trying to do with our children, which is the beautiful part of it, which is that we're trying to figure out who is this person and how do we honor it now right? And not force you into a process and a system whereby later on, we're going to tell you that now you need to then be free. (laughs) And so basically working with ourselves, working with families, working with community to unlearn the shit that we came with so that we can be our best selves, create a holistic, transformative, liberatory institution that can be a model and also create that space for our children to be free and to be themselves. That's where we are in the process. We're really optimistic and we see the space for expanding right now. And there's more to come from AJC. So look out for us and be sure to contribute to any fundraisers that we have coming up because the vision is big and our will to make it happen is even bigger. Be sure to check out the show notes page to get connected to Yolan's work and world raisingfreepeople.com forward slash 109. Yolande has such a warm, firm energy that just pulled me in right away. I'm grateful that she made time to offer us something good and useful in this episode. Much love, sis. Thank you for listening to Fair of the Free Child podcast. Like the show? Get more resources at RaisingFreePeople.com.